1: Hey people, this is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast, Kurt Vonnegut Radio. Today on the show, we've got a very special guest, Andrew Leland, whose memoir, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, is out today from Penguin Press. Andrew has a condition, retinitis pigmentosa, which has been causing him to lose his sight over time. Today, he is legally blind. The New Yorker just ran an excerpt from Andrew's memoir last week called How to Be Blind. Language is coded in a way, right, where it's like yes. centering the, the people with vision, like in the same way that like, um, you know, if we talk to our black friends or something, they'll be like, hmm, why is it always got to be dark humor? You know, like if you look mm. at the way the language is constructed, absolutely nothing good is happening in the language when something is black, you know, you're black bald or whatever. You know yeah
0: yeah and, and you know and i it's worth pointing out that like i don't a lot of a lot of times people will be like i mean do you see what i mean oh i'm so sorry i fucked yeah, up yeah. so bad <laughs> you know and for me like because it's so deep in the language like yeah you can't you can't say like oh well you shouldn't use visual language or metaphors around blind people because then like you, you truly helen keller made this point in, in one of her books like you would just basically have to talk in pretzels yeah. um but i will say that the flip side of that which is to say using blindness as a metaphor for ignorance right that is harmful so yeah. visual language visual metaphors for knowledge fine blindness me- me- blind metaphors for ignorance not so great
1: yeah which kind of boils down to the whole like punching up punching down with jokes thing right i mean mm. that's how i like i'm not going to aim the brunt of a joke at somebody that has less power than me or a group of people that have less power or not as much power as sort of the ordinary whatever that just seems like being an a-hole you know like a jerk right yeah am i I I getting that right am i because i think it's an important point you make
0: yeah i mean i think for me it's more about like there is a lived experience of blindness that the metaphor completely misses and there is a and i think to your point like there's a prejudice around blindness that gets exacerbated by equating it with ignorance
1: Yeah, and but- you know
0: i gotta say like like when you're making an analogy to to race yeah i remember i was reading this fantastic book earlier this year um make sure i get the title right it's called who will pay reparations on our souls by mm-hmm. jesse mccarthy it's an essay collection um like kind of linked essays about Black culture. Yeah. And in reading his introduction, and I I read this after I'd, I'd written my book, but um but I quote another black critic named Greg Tate who says yeah. something similar in my introduction. Yeah. But um, but just like reading McCarthy on black thought and just thinking about the idea. Like when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, like there's this intellectual tradition of black thinkers. And I, I thought to myself, like, what is blind thought? And like, in a way, like this book. My book is trying to kind of map out a little bit of that territory, too. And it's not like an intellectual history in that sort of very academic way. But, right. you know, I am trying to link together a constellation of blind thinkers and 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 really like put the lie to that metaphor of blindness as ignorance and think like and, and try to find out real ways in which blind thinking is actually incredibly creative and innovative and joyful and exciting. And I do think I have found at least like the edges of some of that.
1: I think you did. I mean, I think it did in the book. And, um, well, I mean, like, you know, I don't think it's any, do we worry about spoilers? We'll just ask maybe (laughs) to cut it out. But I mean, it's like at the end of the book, you know, it's like, I love that scene, you know, with you and why are all the names Lily and Oscar in bed and you're just in that moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, you just leave your glasses over on the thing. And like the, I think the last line of the book almost is like, I wait to pick up my glasses and put them on after they've already gone downstairs. Like it's pretty fabulous way to end and a pretty fabulous description of an experience and how sight or a particular kind of sight that we ascribe to eyes uh, is not central to the great pleasure you could have you know
0: yeah thank you gabe yeah i think the core idea there is just that it doesn't disability or blindness doesn't have to be an incompleteness and right. that one can be whole amid that condition and yeah. that's that's a that's a kind of a hard one conclusion i think that and it's also an ongoing one that's another thing that i've i've been realizing is that like i had this thought that like i would write the book and the book would be published and like mm all the conclusions I draw are just like in the bank and I'm good. And of course, like, you you know,
1: dog, you got it all answered. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Dialed (laughs) in and now I'm done. But, but of course, like it is a daily kind of practice. A lot of these ideas that I have to sort of not only continue to interrogate, but just like reenact and sort of reevaluate. And it's, it's a practice rather than a, a, you know, an action that's been completed, I think.
1: I love that. Is that a recent conclusion of your part that it's a practice? Because I, I love the sound of that. That's great.
0: It is recent. I think it came like from being done with the book and being like, wait, what? Why am I still confused and like <laughs> like still like having revelations that I've already had? Yeah. You know, but yeah. I think some revelations you kind of have to have like every day for 50 years. Totally,
1: and then, totally. You know, I, you're still not done. I have like a list of questions that like for a long time I would just ask myself every day because my brain is so dumb it would just go wander off into whatever direction so i would just ask it these questions just to kind of to remind it almost on a daily basis and i feel like the same thing goes for writing craft writing tips mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the minute i hear something wonderful and insightful about that it's just out my brain i have to constantly mm. recite it out loud for myself or i just don't know it you know
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: um but let me uh let me just read this first page and Then we will take it from there as far as like how we navigate. Okay. So this is from Andrew Leland's memoir, which drops next week. The Country of the Blind, it's from Penguin Press. Uh, Let's see, A Journey at the End of Sight? I, I can't see the subtitle A anymore. Memoir at the End of a, Sight. A Memoir at the End of Sight. Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight. God, what a great title. Okay, here we go. Introduction. The End Begins. I'm going blind as I write this. It feels less dramatic than it sounds. The words are disappearing as I type they aren't they
0: aren't disappearing they aren't i'm not gonna correct you but it's just oh i
1: love that i love that thank you no i just got some new glasses (laughs) i literally just got new glasses yesterday so it's like they are disappearing
0: as you read but not as i type
1: yeah 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 no that's sorry man great no that that's like a that's what this show is for is to catch those moments
0: i'm just gonna Um, be relentless i'm gonna interrupt you every sentence really
1: dog that's why i'm here man uh okay (laughs) The (laughs) I like this. Andrew putting me on blast. The words aren't disappearing as I type. I'm sitting comfortably in the sunroom. The sun is rising like it's supposed to. I can plainly see Lily sitting next to me, reading in her striped pajamas. The visible world is disappearing, but it's not in a hurry. It feels at once catastrophic and commonplace. I love that, by the way like reading an article about civilization's imminent collapse from the climate crisis, then setting the article down and going for a pleasant bike ride through a mild spring morning. I just thought that like so captured. I mean, as far as, you know, a way to describe what it is that you might grapple with, because we can all relate to that climate crisis bike ride deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no cure for retinitis pigmentosa, RP, the condition I was diagnosed with more than 20 years ago, so I usually see my eye specialist every other year. At these visits, I go through a full day of tests, but they just track the decline. At the end of the day, we have a short conversation about the someday promise of stem cell or gene therapy. During my last visit, she showed me an illustration of how much vision I had left. It reminded me of ice cubes melting in hot water. Two small wobbly ovals in the center and two skinny shapes floating along floating along the sides. The wobbly, the wobbly, the wobbly ovals represented the central vision I still had and the strips were my peripheral vision. I had about 6% of what a fully sighted person sees. My doctor frowned graciously as she gestured at the skinny French fry shapes. When those go, she said to her medical, inner medical deadpan, neither cheerful nor grim, your mobility will become more limited. Those two strips of residential peripheral vision are what you're residual. Going, residual. I'm not, I'm, I'm ruthless, Gabe. No, no, Just no. I actually, I really weird. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, What did I say?
0: You said residential. It's I said
1: residential. Oh my I feel God. like
0: such an ass interrupting you, but Dude, I, I think I got this is to. cool.
1: I think we should All take right. this show on the road Just do the dog, whole I fucking like this. book this way. This would be like a <laughs> like a dirt style audio book. Yeah, we could make like this would be a killer audible book. Um, okay. Your mobility will become more limited. Those two strips of residual peripheral vision are what you're using to get around. I want, I want to read like one more paragraph. Is that okay?
0: Yeah, as long as I can keep on interrupting yeah, you. Yeah, no, and we should. Wise. I'm going
1: to get some words wrong this time on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Describing what I can't see is surprisingly difficult, mostly because my brain adapts to it so quickly. I have severe tunnel vision, but what I see doesn't look like a tunnel. The walls of the enclosure aren't visible. I have the strongest sense of the contours of my blindness in periods when my vision changes. When suddenly there are things I don't see that I ought to, that I saw until recently. I bump into furniture in my house that hasn't moved in years. I put a cup down for a moment and it disappears. I'll painstakingly rake the wobbly ovals and slender French fries of my residual vision across the table's surface again and again. And when I finally find the cup, it's it standing blamelessly in what even a few weeks ago I would have described as quote, plain sight. It's still in plain sight, it's just that my sight is growing less and less plain. That is just some absolutely gorgeous writing, by the way. I mean, thanks, Gabe. Congrats, Doc. Congrats.
0: I really appreciate it. It's really weird hearing somebody yourself. else read it. I've never heard anybody other than the robot that speaks to me from my computer <laughs> read that.
1: Um. Yeah, I feel like there are there are moments in here where you describe the experience of being blind. You know, the kinds mm. of things that would like be front and center on one's mind or one's like sort of experience. And I can't remember where it was, where you described, maybe it was when you were a teenager. There mm-hmm. was one time where you are like, I'm just going to go out and do it. Like, I'm just going to go walk down the street. And you realized in the process of doing that, that that had become a nightmare. Just a simple act of of strolling somewhere that you thought you could get to. And huh. it, it it really scared you. It it made a psychic impact.
0: I wonder. I wonder what part you're talking about. I mean, there's a part that actually is in the New Yorker excerpt that's not in the book. That where um, it was. It was. It was the the incident that kind of forced me to buy a cane for the first time. That's it. And that's it. Lily was Lily was out of town, and we had just moved to Missouri to like mid Missouri, which was like a deeply pedestrian, unfriendly place, and. I was still riding a bike then, but I had stopped driving and, um, and I got home and like took out, went to look at my bag for my I prescription, prescription sunglasses. I went to go find my glasses to swap them out with my prescription glasses. And I found that my, my regular glasses had disappeared. They must've fallen out of my bag on the bike ride. And so I was like, shit, I don't want to spend like four days or however long she was gone for, like just wearing sunglasses all the time. And I didn't have a backup pair. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to lens crafters. I should have just called a cab, but I think I had some like, you know. Stubborn idea that yeah. I would just walk to Lenscrafters. It was only like whatever two miles away or something, yeah. and uh, that that walk turned out to be extremely harrowing. And you know, I think it would have been harrowing for any pedestrian, but it was also this sense of like just just felt unsafe on multiple levels. And I just wished that I had a way to signal to other cars and other people that I might not see as well as them you know and because normally i think when you're just on sidewalks it's easy like in your sort of day-to-day life to to hide it from yourself and from other people and so i just i just googled like canes (laughs) and then i found this they actually made something called a i think it's called like a visibility cane Mm -hmm. and it's like it's nice and small so like you don't really use it to tap around like i do now um but it's more just like a semiotic object that is like a flag you know it's like blind person be don't you know they're probably not going to see you if you step right in front of them and that that was the cane that started it all and but you know i really just i kept it folded up in my bag for years after that it was like an important milestone but still like just the very very tip of the spear so to speak when did that was the wrong way to use the expression tip of the spear that's not what tip of the spear means it was the uh (laughs) tip of the iceberg spear shaped iceberg
1: um Like your relationship to Canes, like, I mean, that's not something I get to talk to you about. I don't know if that's like invasive or not. I mean, when we went out to dinner last summer uh, on Cape Cod with your family, Mm -hmm. uh, you just broke it out. And it was like, seemed like it was second nature. And there was like a couple of times where you stopped a little bit longer on the curb because I could tell you were like gathering intelligence, figure out what Mm -hmm. was going on. And I thought that was cool. I was like, that's how more people should be in their life. Like, just take a minute to take in all these elements and figure out what's going on. You know?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there's a uh, a really wonderful guy named Brian Bashan, who used to run the, until recently, he was the CEO of the San Francisco Lighthouse, which is one of the biggest blindness sort of training organizations in the country. Um and he's been a kind of a mentor. You know, I've kind of like gathered up I've like collected blind mentors over the course of of writing this book and yeah. um and he um you know, he's he 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 gave me a great quote about like how the training that he got the blindness training, you know, you you look at being lost, he's like you're not really trained until you have a faith in your ability to figure it out and that like you, you know, if you're, you're not really lost it's kind of like a magnificent puzzle. I mean, you are lost, but like right, you look right. at it as like a, a magnificent puzzle rather than like this like doomed hellish thing, you know, and, and, but then right. he kind of had this like chuckle add-on, which was like, as long as you're not in a hurry. And I think there was like, you know, it seemed like a just sort of like a vuncular, like bonus bonus fact, but it's really true. Like you can't be in a hurry. Like there's all these things that are true about blindness that like it can feel like a magnificent puzzle rather than like a being doomed and lost, but like it takes a little extra time. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm glad that you uh, you pointed that out
1: yeah no um and i think i just like came across that quote the thing is like i inhaled so much of your book in a short period of time <laughs> like, all i'm like oh, i just read that but it's yeah only, yeah yeah because i think i did i think it's like is that at the end of the book where it's like his philosophy about like um well it's, it's, a, like it's like also puzzle. confusing
0: because he th- because there's this weird disconnect between the new yorker excerpt and my book because i know this is like two inside baseball but the new yorker no. excerpt is like legit an excerpt but also they like sent me back to Colorado for two weeks and I got a lot more material. So it's sort of like a new piece and the old piece all wrapped up in one. It's like, uh, you want to tell me, it's like when they they take the old car and they, you know, like then it comes out at the end of the movie and it's all sparkling and there's like new shit, like, you know, like new, like decals on the side. It's kind of like, that's the excerpt in the New Yorker. So yeah, that quote from Brian is uh, only in the, that's one of the sparkles that got added.
1: I love your journalism. I just want to say that i think that radio lab thing it's like one of the most just exquisite things i've ever listened to or thought about i mean i've told a lot of people about it man it's really unique and um thank you i'm curious about this experience with the new yorker like were you happy to go for another two weeks or were you like oh man that sounds rough because it's kind of boot campy or what were you thinking i mean i think
0: like Bottom line, I'm delighted anytime they're, like, responding to my emails and doing anything. Um, I think, like, there was a a little bit of a panicky disappointment, not disappointed, but just, like, you know, like, in the same spirit as, like, I thought I wrote a book and then would just be done thinking any thoughts for the rest of my life because they all had been (laughs) uh, effectively thought. You know, I was like, wait, what? Like, no, it's an excerpt. Like, I don't want to do more things that I could potentially fail at, you know? Right, right. But, you know, then once I kind of understood that it was awesome um which i already understood but i just had to sort of like get through that it's it's the same thing with any time i get an edit like it doesn't yeah. matter if like the edit is like hey i moved a couple paragraphs around and like there's a couple new sentences for you to write but otherwise this looks good like there's always a period of time where i'm just like doomed you know and it's like <laughs> as though somebody has just told me like not only am i gonna die but like everyone i know is gonna die and i just have to like mourn for a moment and then like i get over it and i actually get interested in the problems that it are before me you know and it's like a fun puzzle
1: it it is wild though when you get that feedback and they're like we'll just take out that character and move this to here and they're like wait a second no this thing's been set in stone you're messing with history here with my for me it's less
0: that like i'm less i don't feel that same level of I don't think it's about like wanting to preserve the old thing. Yeah. I'm sure that's part of it.
1: I'm incapable of thinking of it as a different thing. It's not like I want to preserve it. It's like just what I know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think for me, it's like, it's just like, it's actually more like, I am not equal to this task. Like the thing Mm. you've asked me to do, I'm sure a greater man could do it, but like, I don't know how I'm gonna be able to do this like you know, and like it, it really doesn't matter, like it could be something small, but but I just like read a sentence that's like, you know, we want to like sharpen the argument around this and like see more of this, and I'm like, that's not I don't have the yeah the, you're not the, the fern, the the mental right furniture to produce that,
1: that? <laughs> and, and yet, then I'm you, like, I guess I'll try you and you did it, man. This book is just like it is uh. i mean it it is substantial it is a tome and it is beautifully written it is smart it is emotionally vulnerable it is funny like it's new in all the damn things you know that's a really ambitious book that you delivered on like well
0: i mean you know speaking of the editorial process too like my editor at penguin press emily cunningham was they gave me multiple moments of just like i don't know how i'm gonna do this because she you know i like I I made the mistake of showing a draft. I mean, it wasn't a mistake, but I, I showed it to my friend who was just like, nailed it. You know, and he was like, <laughs> you knocked it out of the park. And I like totally believed him. and was just like, I believe I did. And then she, her first editorial memo was like, there is much to admire here, you know, like, but. And I felt like very bad. But yeah, without her pushing me over and over again up until the very end, like it
1: definitely would not. You worked so um, hard on this. I knew you for these last like year and a half, or what? You know, like we're living yeah. in the same state together is what I mean. Like I knew you, of yeah. course, but um, yeah, you worked so hard, and like with every deadline, it's like okay, now I got to go back and go through the whole thing again and sort of tighten yeah. it up and work these arguments. Like it was, you really put your heart and soul into this thing. Yeah, yeah. What do you think motivated your editor to have such a high standard like that? I mean, just her excellence as a thinker, or? Does she have Kinda. any relationship to blindness or to folks? I don't
0: think so. She, I think she would have told me if she did. I think she's just, I just think that's her professional methodology. You know, I think she's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. she's yeah. got a really high standard.
1: And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I, I feel like know, this so, would be a difficult book. book to edit. Like, I mean, you know, I've edited books like this. Where are you going to draw the line on stuff? Like, you know, as far as informative stuff versus like personal stuff. That's you know, exactly love, the challenge. Like, I love the, how the you balance. opened. Yeah. I love how you opened, like just name your wife. I don't even think you explained to the reader who she was. Right. Oh, really? I, I don't, I don't know. know that for sure. Don't miss. <laughs> hey, I could be. I have, but maybe here. not. Yeah. But it's like that, that trusting the reader, you know, yeah. and like, yeah. we're going to make this on the personal tip very much. So here. At the front end and the back end of the book as well as in the middle throughout
0: yeah no that was the that was the thing that she pushed me on the most and that was the hardest balance to strike was like i there were drafts that it felt like there were a lot of really personal like borderline journal entry stuff and then all of a sudden it would be like meanwhile on wikipedia.org like blind people throughout history were doing stuff and then it'll be like record scratch i'm right. sad and my son pointed at a seagull you know and then be like email in from wikipedia.org uh and so like yeah really just massaging that not massaging it but like really the challenge was to be like what are the th- things that i'm experiencing that have like legitimate genuine motivations to push me into this more like discursive historical or reported material and then how do we get back to the the personal stuff so really like putting an incredible amount of energy into those transitions but also just like having the relationship between them feel
1: organic do you feel like to some extent you may have created a little bit of a new form here or do you feel like oh no gabe if you knew this this and this book you'd see i totally like use their format like what's your thing yeah
0: on that? definitely refuse to uh say that i've made a new form i mean i think you know my my philosophy is probably more like every book has to make some rules for itself and even like a super derivative book is going to be doing some kind of like formal invention in that way just yeah. to like build the you know like just the same way that i I don't know, I don't know how to build an engine or a house, but I imagine that's like, those are probably bad examples because you can use prefab materials, but like a sculpture, right? Or a drawing, like every drawing of a cat, even if you're like following the methodology and like you've set the same damn triangle for a nose, like there's just a little bit of your own wobble in it. And so I feel like surely there's a lot of my own wobble here, but you know, I think there's a lot of books that, and I think it's actually a kind of like popular um, format and productive genre that, is happening a lot these days where you see books that are like, this is a cultural history of X told through my own experience that weaves together,
1: like reporting and history, but
0: also memoir. So I, I, yeah, I think I'm kind of more a part of a tradition than inventing one.
1: Yeah. I mean, even on Substack, like, you know, just a little bit that I've been writing on there, I was saying to somebody, uh, I would never have been able to publish this like in any kind of legacy mag you know it's mm-hmm. like a hot it's mm-hmm. like a mix of memoir and some fact and some like analysis and so you have more freedom to do that which i think is really cool um but i'm not trying to say that your book is like all sub stack let me uh <laughs> let me uh turn on the light it's super little, stack let me turn on the light a little brighter so i don't miss it read any more words okay i'll be right back. okay okay uh, I'm just going to read a little bit, um, still from your intro, with the section that starts. Blindness is a radically distinct way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Blindness is a radically distinct way of being in the world. Humans are so fundamentally visual in their understanding and experience that blindness requires its own domain. The early science fiction writer H.G. Wells's short story, "The Country of the Blind." takes this idea literally, imagining a civilization of blind men and women who live without any knowledge or need of the sighted world. In a hidden mountain valley, one day an explorer called Nunez, separated from his expedition in a rock slide, ends up falling into the forgotten valley. There he discovers the fabled country of the blind, which has existed without sight for 15 generations. Every person he meets was born blind just like their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents before them. They don't even understand the concept of sight. Their language has no word for see. That just doubled me over when I encountered that <laughs> sentence the first time. Mm. As he comes to terms with this situation, Nunez proceeds with supreme confidence, repeating the old proverb to himself like a mantra, In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I found myself approaching blindness a bit like Nunez, as an accidental, curious, and sometimes wary visitor to the strange and often beautiful country. For now, I still feel like an outsider. My partial sight sets sets me at a remove from those who can't access all the visual information that I do. I'll never be native to blindness, the way that those born blind are. My brain developed visually. And learning blind skills from reading with my fingers and ears to drawing mental maps of my city requires a radical shift in the way that I relate to the world around me. But unlike Wells's character, who escapes in the end, I'm here to stay, slowly becoming a naturalized citizen. Should I keep reading or was that a good place to pause? You're the
0: the driver of this buggy, my friend. Okay, cool, 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 cool.
1: Actually, I just want to jump ahead a little bit because, like, yep. this part was like really staggering uh, when I came to this. This is just about like the, the blind community versus like the experience of the deaf community and, and mm. the kind of infrastructure that's built up around it. Yeah, blind people don't benefit from the sort of large, well-established institutions that deaf communities have built. Part of this may be because hearing-blind people don't face the same barriers to verbal communication that deaf people do, and so they never needed to develop a distinct shared language. Language is the most important feature in the formation of a community, and sign language is no exception. In the U.S., the signing community is as linguistically and culturally rich as any other language community. Many deaf students describe their arrival at schools like Gallaudet, how do you Gallaudet, pronounce it? I think. Gallaudet, the world's first fully deaf-centric university in Washington, D.C., as a revelation. Having spent their childhoods feeling isolated from hearing families and peers, suddenly they're plunged into a world of deaf culture and language, where they no longer need accommodations to eavesdrop on a conversation or attend a lecture. Still, I found pockets of concentrated blind life, In Florida, I attended the National Convention of the largest blindness organization in the U.S., wandering among thousands of blind people in the halls of a colossal Orlando Convention Center, a forest of canes tapping and colliding. And for the first time, I felt the power of being in a space where the blind outnumbered the sighted. I met blind activists from across the political spectrum who made annual visits to their representatives in Congress and others who marched in street demonstrations with their white canes in one hand and placards in the other. In California and New York, I met blind geniuses working at the cutting edge of digital accessibility, who spent their days soldering circuit boards, designing 3D printed objects, and editing TV soundtracks. I found myself drawn to these media-obsessed tinkerers, who seemed to approach their blindness as a feature that spurred creativity and and invention. I mean, it's just like you can't go wrong with any page in this book. You know, it is truly (laughs) freaking mesmerizing and like, you know, stimulating and thought provoking. Um, At some point, I want to talk about some of the people you met, like at the Colorado Center, because I know like the way that they became blind or the various life experiences, like the one woman that like woke up, you know, in a hospital and the doctor told her. Yeah, but. This idea that blindness can stir, as a spur creativity and invention. How is that related in your own life?
0: Well, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that this experience made me a writer. You know, I mean, I think you've known me long enough that like, I uh, I was certainly an editor um, and a podcast producer, but you know, when I would write these like freaky little ditties on my secret blog that I don't know if you ever knew about it, but (laughs) I don't know if you let me in, it was, weird. I was knocking Um, on that
1: blog for years. I couldn't get in.
0: It was like, if like Mark Lehner got hit in the head and, uh, was like during his recovery, just like wrote some nonsense that was nonsensical. Um, that was my blog. Uh, but yeah, like then, then once I started going through this stuff, I felt like for the first time I had something kind of urgent to process through, through writing. And, um, so, I mean that for me personally, that's, that's my version of that. Absolutely. And not just like to process my own feelings in a sort of like, you know, writing as therapy way, but like, you know, thinking about the the journalism I've been doing, like just getting hooked into this larger universe that I feel like other people aren't writing about and that I like it's sort of at once a passport in the sense of like, you know, access, getting access to different communities, but also a perspective and a uh, like, a, yeah, perspective. I think you know there's a blind writer um, who's another kind of like mentor I've collected named Ryan Knighton, who's written two really great memoirs about his experiences with RP. And he what, talks what about are the names of those books. If you- uh, His first book is called um, it's called um,
1: Cockeyed. Yeah, you mentioned this person in your book, right? Like that yeah. was like very valuable to you that someone had taken, please continue. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Him and, the, and another writer named Jim Knipfel who has a book called Slackjaw, like those two books, Cockeyed and Slackjaw. And it's funny because they're both really similar figures. And like weirdly at the very beginning, like before I ever owned a cane, like, you know, I knew I had RP, but it was very, very distant from blindness. Ryan Knighton pitched an interview with, Jim Knipfel for The Believer and I remember I got to like be in touch with both of them and I was like holy shit like this is so you know and uh, they, yeah. Ryan I remember was like oh yeah like there's this cool like ball you can put on your tip of your cane that looks like an eyeball and it looks like you've like stabbed an eyeball and I recommend it it's a kind of cool punk <laughs> rock thing to have and I was like I don't have a cane what are you talking about you know it was like so distant back then oh, um, oh. but anyway I,
1: that's interesting
0: I mean yeah so Ryan likes to, I've, I've, I've heard Ryan say in numerous interviews and I think it's a great idea like that for him blindness isn't so much a subject as it is like a perspective. And yeah. and other blind writers too, like there's a great writer named Leona Godin who has a book that came out in 2021 called Their Plant Eyes. That's another book like mine in a way where she is writing personally and culturally about blindness. Um, but but yeah, so I think for me as a writer, that that's a really powerful idea. The idea that, that this thing that seems like a diminishment or a constraint is actually something that's like a passport to a whole new world that's really been the most generative thing I've ever experienced.
1: Okay. So that was amazing, right? I love talking to Andrew Leland. So now is when you need to go buy his new book, the country of the blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Also, you can find Andrew on Twitter. His handle is at Quailty. I'll spell that out for you. Q-U-A-I-L-T-Y, and you can find him at Quailty on Instagram too. Also, Andrew's going on a cross-country book tour, and you can see his tour dates on his Instagram, and you should go out and meet him in person and say hi. I promise you. You'll be glad you did. And you can find me on Twitter, at Gabe Hudson, or on Instagram, at Gabe G. Hudson. Uh, Same for threads. Yes, I'm on threads. Uh, And if you want to support the show, please go follow the show and rate and review us wherever you get your fine podcasts. Jude Brewer was executive producer and editor for this episode. Peace.